Okay, so welcome to the Walk of All Mythologies. I am your host, Jane Allred, and we're going to start. Yeah, we're going to start. Sorry about that, just had to check with my tech, but we're good to go. Okay, so, because this is the first episode, well, I'll probably tell you what I'm about on every episode, but... Especially we need this because we're on the first episode here. This is the first episode of Walk to All the Mythologies coming at you. So, <laughs> the idea here is that have you ever, like, read an audiobook, but you thought, man, I wish someone was just, like, commenting upon it, like, every once in a while. And, yeah, that's what we're doing here. And the person who's commenting on it is the same person who's reading it. You get a two-in-one. <laughs> okay, so to start out, I wanted to go with a book that I have a lot to say about. It's Mansfield Park by Jane Austen. Um, Mansfield Park was written in 1814 by a woman named Jane Austen. Uh, yeah, I don't have a script. <laughs> That's not the idea of doing this. I try to start it as if I have a script, but I don't. Um, because I'm just drawing from my notes and my own knowledge bank. This is going to be more informal. <clears throat> so, um, before I start any book, well... That's presumptuous, isn't it? This is going to take a while to read Mansfield Park. But I wanted to talk a little bit about why Mansfield Park. <laughs> so, I find Mansfield Park um, to be one of Jane Austen's most ambitious novels. Um, and therefore, one of her least successful ones. But I think the... I think there's a lot of interesting things going on. Um, and specifically what I'm probably going to focus on as we're talking through it is going to be the fact that this is one where Jane Austen is really reckoning with empire, like the British Empire, you know. Um, and it was a big thing back then and still today, I would argue, but maybe you've heard of it. <laughs> but the reason why Mansfield Park is grasping with this is um, the owner of Mansfield Park, Sir Thomas uh, with some last name I don't give a shit about. Um, well, we're going to count for it soon enough. Bertram, that's his last name. Sir Thomas Bertram. You know, he has this big manor in, I don't know, the outskirts of London somewhere, somewhere in the country. <laughs> this is an informed expert's opinion on Mansfield Park. Um, anyway, so he has this big estate that's funded by his property in the West Indies. Um, I think it's Antigua. Don't quote me on that. Um, yeah. And so we're, we're going to see the book... Um, I mean, Jane Austen clearly is an abolitionist, um, but a lot of people don't 
it's hard to see because slavery is barely mentioned, but it's in the subtext. Um, but, you know, being an abolitionist is not like a spicy position at the time. This is when it's really starting to gain steam. Uh, it's at the same time as uh, the evangelical movement, um, which was abolitionist, funnily enough. Um <laughs> considering what it is today. Well, there's continuities, which we'll talk about. Um, yeah, so both these are very much present in the work, but I, you know, as I said, it wasn't a spicy take at this time, and I feel like Jane Austen doesn't really have much to say about Empire, even though she has a lot to say about it, because she wrote a whole novel about it. And, you know, that's sort of spinning the wheels, I think, is sort of interesting. Um, and so, yeah, it's a big old lock that there may not be a key to. I don't know. I'm trying to make a excuse for my dumb title. All right, so now that we've reviewed the general reasons, the, the themes of the book that I'm interested in, well, there are several more, but um, we introduced the ones that will help frame this. I want to talk about a little about my personal relationship with Jane Austen. Um, so I think we can start not at the beginning, but at the recent past. Um where I was on a road trip this last summer, and I'm still thinking about the books on tape I read there, because it was Mansfield Park um, and Jane Austen's last novel, Persuasion, which also has some thinking about empire, you know. <clears throat> and around the same time, I was reading a lot of uh, literature for reasons about um, the British Empire in the 19th century, and specifically feminism and the ways in which empire and feminism served each other. Um, so a really easy example is a lot of the British propaganda for why they needed to have a presence in India once they already had it, <laughs> once they already conquered the subcontinent. They had to come up with justification for keeping it and having their brutal regime. And one of the big justifications um, was that they were liberating the women from the violent patriarchal society there, which, you know, Britain is one of the most patriarchal societies, so it's pretty rich, but we'll get into that. I have a whole lecture planned on that. <laughs> anyway, so that's a recent past. Um, but I have a long history with Jane Austen. Um, we're two Janes in a pod. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> so, as a teenager, um, no, anyway, cut that. We're gonna, we're just gonna start the story anew. We're gonna keep this clip. Um, but we're gonna start from the beginning this time. Hard break. In the text, this is where you see, like, the stars. We're making a clean break. Okay, so I grew up 
in the lamest college town in the United States, Provo, Utah. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know if that's a good joke. Um, <laughs> there's, I know for sure there are lamer colleges, towns I've been to them. If you've ever been to Statesboro, Georgia, which I won't get into how I've been there, that's a lamer college town. And so, somehow more racist than Provo, too. Um, <laughs> so anyway, about Provo. We're talking about Provo. Um, that's where I grew up. Um, my father was on the income of a university professor. Um, I'm the youngest of nine children. Um, so you can probably guess where this is going if you know anything about Provo, Utah. There's some Mormon, there's some Mormon stuff in our past. <laughs> Which is good for this topic because, you know, Mormons <clears throat> love Jane Austen. Um, be, because Mormons just love the idea that they're fancy. Um, <laughs> there's more about that. We'll get into it. Um, but, okay, so they love Jane Austen, so it may seem, like, ironic that, um, it was sort of, like, an escape for me, or not an escape, but, like, her novels were sort of, like, a dream for an escape. And so let's explain that. Um, so I explained that I was Mormon, the youngest of nine children. Um, but uh, I came from an odd family insofar as at two years old, my mother was excommunicated for heresy. And if by the Mormon church, they can do that. Um, it wasn't technically by heresy, but I'm not going to get into that story. It was for heresy. Not technically, though. <laughs> so, anyway, my parents decided to still, like, raise us in this community, and we went to a church. And, you know, it was miserable on top of that, being, like, a queer person um, and a trans feminine person. Um, like... Not a great upbringing. Well, not a great context. There are many things I appreciate about my upbringing, but wasn't a great situation. Um, and, you know, because Jane Austen is coded feminine, you know, it was a good escape. And there's another reason, um, which I will get into more, but that was one point. Okay, so I put a bit to our clean start. Okay, so in honor of um Jane Austen's focus on class, you know, I'm give it a bit of a class analysis of Provo Utah. Well, at least in my area, Provo Utah, because you know it's a actually a fairly big city. Just so I can't give a complete one, but so my parents, again, I, as I said, I come from a large family. So they bought this big house in at the time, sort of like on the outskirts of town. Um, 
there's an area known as the River Bottoms. Um, the reason for this, it's near um, a place called Provo Canyon. Um, so let me tell you about Provo Canyon. This is all relevant, trust me. <laughs> so, um, well, basically everywhere where everyone lives in Utah is by a mountain range called the Wasatch Front. And it's sort of like... Um, the last edge of like the Rockies region. It's not part of the Rockies, but it's part of like that mountainous region. And to the west of it, it's um, the region known as the Basin or Grange region. So there's like basically flat desert um, with the occasional smaller mountain range. Um, that's sort of what like you associate with Nevada. Um, you know, the Great Salt Lake is um, part of that region too. Um, just a giant salt lake. <laughs> as the name suggests. Um, right, so we were talking about Provo Canyon, that's part of that range. Um, it's in between two, I think, very lovely mountains in the range. Um, uh, Mount Timpanogos and Mount Cascade. If I to the top of both, you can look them up. If for whatever reason you're going to choose to hike one of them, hike to the top of Timpanogos. I almost died on Cascade. Long story. Um, but anyway, so there's a canyon in between those two um, formed by the Provo River. Um, you know, it's more of a stream, but there's not really any big rivers in that region, so it gets called a river. Um, so it flows out of the canyon. And again, as I was suggesting, like um, the great thing about all the cities in Utah is there's this dramatic shift between these super tall mountains. Um, they're about like, you know, 7,000 feet above. Um, the peaks are about 7,000 feet above where everyone's living. And then sort of a flatter area. Um, so the river bottoms is where the river like flows out. And it's called the river bottoms because it's, naturally sort of a lower place um you either can go out of the river bottoms into sort of the foothills um near the mountains um and that's sort of in the direction of byu which is the university there the mormon church owned university where my father was a professor at well he still is somehow <laughs> But, uh, yeah, so that's one direction. And then you could go up into sort of, um, you know, it was higher because it's not the river bottoms, but um, a little more flat, the town of Orem, which if you do crosswords, you should know about it. But otherwise, it's insignificant. Um, okay, so we were talking about class. <laughs> This is all relevant, because the river bottoms, there are lots of orchards there, because it was, like, a little more uh, fertile, maybe? Don't quote me on that. I mean, it must have been. Like, my house was a old farmhouse that had a lot of sketchy um, remodeling done to it. Um, but, yeah, we were basically, when I was young, like, the only people in the neighborhood and as I was growing up um, 
what's the word for like gentrification when there's like nothing they're replacing because it was like farmland because <laughs> that's what happened there like and this was you know pre-2008 but definitely the bush era so like it was you know the era of mcmansions um so there are a lot of mcmansions developers are building and a lot of doctors and um pyramid scheme enthusiasts <laughs> i think entrepreneur is the polite word uh, the politically correct word. Um, so, yeah. Um, so those were my neighbors. And I knew that, well, I wouldn't say no, because it wasn't, it wasn't exactly right. But I, I felt like a distinct difference between me and these rich assholes. Um, and this was on a lot of lines, you know, like they were very hardline Mormons. I definitely was not. They tended to be very conservative. My family was not. Um, but again, this is only a partial truth because I think we all sort of fit into what you might call the professional middle class. Um, you know, uh, members of the middle class, you know, you would call it the upper middle class too, right? But the professional really says, like, this is a class of people who rely on heavy education. So doctors, obviously. And doctors have always been the more conservative end of that. Um, but university professors also very much fit into that. And I mean, they tend to be quite conservative too, to be honest, but in a different way. Um So Jane Austen to me represented, I think, sort of like, well, I, I, I talked about like the previous thing, like the feminine coding of her, but also like from that, it obsessing over Jane Austen allowed me to have my little superiority over my neighbors. Um, I mean, I was superior to <laughs> But I intensely needed to feel that, which I don't anymore because I'm an adult. <laughs> um, but anyway, the irony of that, as I was trying to explain, is like, it was a petty little dispute. And the reason why I went such into detail in this is I think that, um, you know, like Jane Austen, she's beloved by the professional middle class. And I, I think she very much speaks for them, even in the 19th century. Um, so I remember when I was, one thing I loved about Jane Austen when I was like a teenager was like, oh, look, look at all these critiques she's offering of the rich. But we're going to see, uh, not so much in this, but I think we're going to read Persuasion after this, that it's very much critique of the rich rich. But um, it very Mansfield Park, especially actually, um, very much speaks for the somewhat rich, and I think that really is Jane's Jane Austen's position, and 
I think it says something why she speaks to, especially like my wing of the professional middle class, the university wing. Um, so there we are. Um, I think now that I've gone all over that, um, we can get to reading. Okay. Mansfield Park by Jane Austen. Read by Jane Allred. This is an audio recording, part of the Lock of To All Mythologies podcasts. You can check us out on, I don't know, like the podcast sites. <laughs> God damn it. <laughs> All right. Chapter one. About 30 years ago, Miss Maria Ward of Huntingdon, with only 7,000 pounds, had the good luck to captivate Sir Thomas Bertram of Mansfield Park. That's the slave owner we're talking about. Okay, so he's of Mansfield Park in the county of Northampton, and to be thereby raised the rank of a baronet's lady, with all the comforts and consequences of, a, of an aunt's amount. <laughs> Okay, I'm sorry. The, the the text it has the A N before handsome and other um, words starting with an H because you know in a British accent, um, whatever that means. Um, you know you don't pronounce it. I don't know why I'm explaining. You already know this. It just prints this, and I cannot help not using a Cockney accent. All right. Let's try this again. With all the comforts and consequences of an handsome house. <laughs> in large. Okay. <laughs> I'll try the next one. All Huntingdon exclaimed on the greatness of the match. And her uncle, the lawyer himself, allowed her to be at least three thousand pounds short of any equitable claim to it. She had two sisters to be benefited by her elevation. And such of their acquaintances thought Miss Ward and Miss Frances, quite as handsome as Miss Maria, did not scruple to predict their marrying with almost equal advantage. But there certainly are not so many men of large fortune in the world as there are pretty women to deserve them. Miss Ward, at the end of half a dozen years, found herself obliged to be attached to the Reverend Mr. Norris, a friend of her brother-in-law, with scarcely any private fortune, and Miss Frances fared yet worse. Miss Ward's match, indeed, when it came to the point, was not contemptible. Okay, is her first name Ward? I never noticed that. I mean, it must be. Oh, no, she's Miss Ward because... Because, um... Miss Maria Ward, who was the eldest, is now Mrs. Bertram. And so the eldest of the single ones is now Miss Ward. There we are. Okay, so Miss Ward is soon to be Mrs. Norris. <laughs> Miss Ward's match, indeed, when it came to the point, was not contemptible. Sir Thomas, being happily able to give his friend an income in the living of Mansfield, and Mr. and Mrs. Norris began their career of conjugal felicity 
with very little less than a thousand a year. But Miss Frances married, in the common phrase, to disoblige her family. I guess that's a common phrase. And by fixing on a lieutenant of Marines, without education, fortune, or connections, did it very thoroughly. She could hardly have made a more untoward choice. Sir Thomas Bertram had interest, which, from principle as well as pride, from a general wish of doing right, and a desire of seeing all that were connected with him in situations of respectability. <laughs> he owned slaves. <laughs> he would have been glad to exert for the advantage of Lady Bertram's sister. But her husband's profession was such as no interest could reach. And, you know, he also lives near the coast, I think is probably some of the implication of that, because he's a lieutenant in the Navy. Um and, you know, these towns of Huntingdon and Northampton, I think, are, like, north of London. I don't know. I never want to go to that godforsaken land. Um, but there's your geography. Okay, so. <clears throat> it was the natural result of the conduct of each party. And such as a very imprudent marriage almost always produces. Oh, I skipped the sentence. Um, before um, Thomas Bertram had any time to devise any other method of assisting him, an absolute breach between the sisters had taken place. It was the natural result of the conduct of each party. And such a very imprudent marriage almost always produces. To save herself from useless remonstrance, Mrs. Price never wrote to her family on the subject till actually married. Lady Bertram, who was a woman of very tranquil feelings, and a temper remarkably easy and indolent, would have contented herself with merely giving up her sister, and thinking no more of the matter. But Mrs. Norris had a spirit of activity, which could not be satisfied till she had written a long and angry letter to Fanny to point out the folly of her conduct and threaten her with all its possible ill consequences. Yeah, this is very... We're going to say in this book, just... There's a really interesting picture of morality in this book. And it's so focused on prudence. It's so focused on a word we're gonna that's going to appear a lot. Propriety. And... Uh, it's just is a lot. It's just manners. But to me, it's interesting that this the manners were so important. And along the time of the reading this, I'm going to try and tie this together with evangelicism that's going on, slavery. We'll see how successful I am. Okay, so Mrs. Price in her turn was injured and angry. And an answer was comprehended each sister in its bitterness and bestowed such very disrespectful reflections on the pride of Sir Thomas, as Mrs. Norris could not possibly keep to herself, put an end to all intercourse between them for a considerable period. Their homes were so distant, and the, cir the circles in which they moved so distinct, is almost to preclude the means of ever hearing of each other's existence during the eleven following years, or, at least, to make it very wonderful to Sir Thomas that Mrs. Norris should ever have it in her power to tell them, as she now and then did, 
in an angry voice that Fanny had caught another child by the end of 11 years. However, Mrs. Price could no longer afford to cherish pride or resentment or to lose one connection that might possibly assist her. A large and still increasing family and husband, <laughs> a husband disabled for active service, but not the less equal to company and good liquor. Ooh, good liquor. And a very small income to supply their wants made her eager to regain the friends she had so carelessly sacrificed. Yeah, some friends. And she addressed Lady Bertram in a letter which spoke so much contrition and despondence, such a superfluity of children, and such a want of almost anything else, as could not but dispose them all to a reconciliation. She was preparing for a ninth lying in, and after bewailing, bewailing the circumstance and imploring their countenance as sponsors to the expected child, she could not conceal how important she felt they might be to the future maintenance of the eight already in her being. Her eldest was a boy of ten years old. That's a child every year, damn. <laughs> her eldest was a boy of ten years old, a fine-spirited fellow, who longed to be out in the world. But what could she do? Was there any chance of his being hereafter useful to Sir Thomas in the concerns of his West Indian property, in which he owned slaves? That's not, I mean, I mentioned that. There's, I think there's only one passage where Jane Austen explicitly mentions slaves, and it's a really interesting one. We'll get to it. Um, no situation would be beneath him. Or what did Sir Thomas think of Woolwich? And I did some research. <laughs> I mean, Wikipedia on this one. <laughs> and I think, um, I think it was probably Woolwich. It's, Oh, God, again, I never hope to go to this godforsaken place, but I think it's sort of by the south coast outside of London. I think it was involved in industry, possibly shipbuilding, but don't quote me on that. Or could a boy be sent out to the east? And we all know what that means. The letter was not unproductive. It reestablished peace and kindness. Sir Thomas sent friendly advice and professions. Lady Bertram dispatched money and baby linen. And Mrs. Norris wrote the letters. Such were its immediate effects. And within a 12 month, Great way of singing here. So within a 12 months, a more important advantage to Mrs. Price resulted from it. Mrs. Norris was often observing to the others that she could not get her poor sister and her family out of her head, and that as much as they had all done for her, she seemed to be wanting to do more. And at length, she could not but own it to, to be her wish that poor Mrs. Price should be relieved from the charge and expense of one child entirely out of her great number. What if they were among them to under care that undertake the care of her eldest daughter, a girl now nine years old, of an age to oof, of an age to require more attention than her poor mother could possibly give? 
the trouble and expense of it to them would be nothing compared with the benevolence of the action. Lady Bertram agreed instantly. And I'm not going to do voices here, but she's talking. I think we cannot do better, said she. Let us send for the child. Sir Thomas could not give so instantaneous and unqualified a consent. He debated and hesitated. There's a serious charge. A girl so brought up must be adequately provided for, or there would be cruelty instead of kindness in taking her from her family. He thought of his own four children, of his own two sons, of cousins in love, etc., but no sooner had he deliberately begun to state his objections than Mrs. Norris interrupted him with a reply to them all, whether stated or not. My dear Sir Thomas, I perfectly comprehend you, and do justice to the generosity and delicacy of your notions, which indeed are quite of a piece with your general conduct, and I entirely agree with you. In the main, as to the propriety of doing everything one could by the way of providing for a child— one had in a manner of taken into one's own hands, and I am sure I should be the last person in the world to withhold my might upon such an occasion. Having no children of my own, who should I look to in any manner, any little matter, I may ever have to bestow, but the children of my sisters? I am, and I am sure Mr. Norris is too just, but you know, I'm a woman of few words and professions. Do not let us be frightened from a good deal from a good deed by a trifle. Give a girl an education and introduce her properly into the world, and ten to one, but she has the means of settling well, without farther expense to anybody. A niece of ours, Sir Thomas, I may say, or at least of yours, would not grow up in this neighborhood without many advantages. I don't say she would be so handsome as her cousins. I dare say she would not, but she would be introduced into the society of this country under such very favorable circumstances as, in all human probability, would get her a creditable establishment. You are thinking of your sons. But do you know that, of all the things upon earth, that is least likely to happen? And if this were written by a modern author, the narrator would say, it was the most likely to happen. I don't know. She ends up with her cousin. Um, <laughs> brought up as they would be, always together like brothers and sisters, it is morally impossible. I never knew an instance of it. It is, in fact, the only sure way of providing against the connection. Suppose her a pretty girl, and seen by Tom or Edmund for the first time seven years hence, I dare say there would be mischief. The very idea of her having been suffered to grow up at a distance from us all in poverty and neglect would be enough to make either of the dear, sweet-tempered boys in love with her, but read her up with them from this time, and suppose her to even have the beauty of an angel, and she will never be more to either than a sister. So this is interesting, and I gave sort of a, uh, what do you call it? A throwaway line where, like, this is the opposite of what happens. Edmund is, is the hair. If you don't want spoilers, don't listen to a real audiobook. Um, 
<laughs> so Edmund is the hero of the story, uh, the second son of Sir Thomas. And I I just don't like the dude. We'll get to it. And I don't like the situation either. And it's not the it's not the incest between cousins that gets me. It's the fact that Edmund is sort of taken as as like he takes her in as like a mentor, we'll see. And I think part of James Austin's thesis is like especially like with this paragraph where Mrs. Norris is saying, oh, the upbringing will make them siblings when because Edmund and um, Fanny have not this brother-sister relationship. They have a teacher-student relationship. They end up together. and I don't know. These are all theories. Um, check out my fan page to add your theory. <laughs> we want to hear from you. Um, but no, I just find I I hate the whole teacher student relationship. Um, part of that is being in academia, and most of them are just abusive, you know. <laughs> and so it's it's just it's something that always makes me cringe, and it's the center part of this book in a way, and that's why I can't get enough of it. So risque. All right, so to move on. There is a great deal of truth in what you say, replied Sir Thomas, and far be it for me to throw any fanciful impediment in the way of a plan, which would be so consistent with the relative situations of each. I only meant to observe that it ought not be lightly engaged in, and that to make it really serviceable to Mrs. Price and creditable to ourselves, we must secure to the child or consider ourselves engaged to secure to her hereafter, as circumstances may arise, such as when she marries my son. Um, the provision of a gentlewoman. <laughs> you can probably tell one of those lines wasn't part of the text. Um, if no such establishment should offer as you are so sanguine in expecting. I thoroughly understand you, cried Mrs. <laughs> She's always crying. I thoroughly understand you, cried Mrs. Norris. I, I guess I should say that trill. I thoroughly understand you, cried Mrs. Norris. I said I wasn't going to do voices. You're everything that is generous and considerate. And I am sure we shall never disagree on this point. Whatever I can do, as you well know, I am always ready enough to do for the good of those I love. And though I could never feel for this little girl the hundredth part over the regard I bear with your own dear children, nor consider her in any respect so much my own, I should hate myself if I were capable of neglecting her. Is not she a sister's child? And could I bear to see her want while I had a, while I had a bit of bread to give her? My dear Sir Thomas, with all my faults I have a warm heart. And poor as I am, would rather deny myself the necessaries of life than to do an ungenerous thing. So, if you are not against it, I will write to my poor sister tomorrow and make the proposal. And, as soon as matters are settled, I will engage to get the child to Mansfield. You shall have no trouble about it. 
My own trouble, you know, I never regard. I will send Nanny to London on purpose, and she may have abetted her cousins, the Saddlers, and the child be appointed to meet her there. They may easily get her from Portsmouth to town by the coach, under the care of any creditable person that may chance to be going. I dare say there is always some reputable tradesman's wife or other going out. Except to the attack on Nanny's cousin, Sir Thomas no longer made any objection. So, so kind that man, taking offense at the attack on Nanny's cousin. Um, and a more respectful, the less economic rendezvous being accordingly, accordingly substituted, everything was considered as settled, and the pleasures of so benevolent a scheme were already enjoyed. Love that sentence. The pleasures of so benevolent a scheme were already enjoyed. It's their morality in a nutshell. Um, the division of gratifying sensations ought not, in strict justice, have been equal. For Sir Thomas was fully resolved to be the real and consistent patron of the selected child. And Mrs. Norris had not the least intentions of being in at any expense whatsoever in her maintenance. As far as walking, talking, and contriving reached, she was thoroughly benevolent, and nobody knew better how to dictate liberality to others. But her love of money was equal to her love of directing, and she knew quite as well how to save her own as to spend that of her friends. Okay, I mean... Have you ever noticed in Jane Austen there's this trope of just an awful woman. <laughs> it gets really tiresome. And, you know, I think this is why, like, Mormon women love Jane Austen because, like, okay, it is like, I love Jane Austen. And part of what I love about Jane Austen is it does give that woman's lens. But, Part of it is it just has so much of this like misogyny directed at other women that you just find a trope in every book of an awful woman like Mrs. Norris. And you know, she is awful, right? But why is Jane also making the choices that she is? Um at least she doesn't own slaves, right? But Sir Thomas comes out better in this. Um anyway. Having married on a narrow income than she had been used to look forward to, she had from the first fancied a very strict line of economy necessary. And what was begun as a matter of prudence soon grew into a matter of choice, as an object of needful solicitude, which there were no children to supply. Had there been a family to provide for, Mrs. Norris might never have saved her money. But having no care of that kind, there was nothing to impede her frugality or lessen the comfort of making a yearly addition to an income which they had never lived up to. Under this infatuating principle, counteracted by no real affection for her sister, it was impossible for her to aim at more than the credit of projecting and arranging so expensive a charity, though perhaps she might so little know herself as to walk home to the parsonage 
after this conversation in the happy belief of being the most liberal-minded sister and aunt in the world. The happy belief indeed. When the subject was brought forward again, her views were never, oof, her views were more fully explained. And in reply to Lady Bertram's common query of, where shall the child come to first sister, to you, or to us? Sir Thomas heard of some surprise that it would be totally out of Mrs. Norris's power to take any share in the personal charge of her. He had been considering her as a particularly welcome addition at the parsonage as a desirable companion to an aunt who had no children of her own. But he found himself wholly mistaken. Mrs. Norris was sorry to say that the little girl staying with them, at least as things then were, was quite out of the question. Poor Mr. Norris's indifferent state of health made it an impossibility. He could no more bear the noise of a child than he could the fly. If indeed he should ever get well of his gouty complaints, it would be a different matter. She should then be glad to take her turn, and think nothing of the inconvenience. But just now, poor Mr. Norris took every moment of her time, and the very mention such of a thing she was sure would distract him. Then she'd better come to us, said Lady Bertram with utmost composure. After a short pause, Sir Thomas added, with dignity, Yes, <laughs> he said I wasn't going to do voices. Yes, let her home be in this house. We will endeavor to do our duty by her, and she will at least have the advantage of companions of her own age and of a regular instructress. You know, people are always talking about, like, governess core, you know, like, as a fashion. Whatever happened to instructress core? That's what I want to be when I grow up, an instructress. Very true, cried Miss... She's always crying. Very true, cried Mrs. Norris, which are both very important considerations, and it will be just the same to Miss Lee whether she has three girls to teach or only two. There can be no difference. I only wish I could be more useful. But you see, I do all in my power. I'm not one of those that spare their own trouble. And, any, and Nanny shall fetch her. However it may be, however it may put me to inconvenience, have my chief counselor away for three days. I suppose, sister, you will put the child in the little white attic near the old nurseries. It'll be much the best place for her. So near, Miss Lee. And not far from the girls and close by the housemaids. Who could either of them help to dress her, you know? And take care of her clothes. For I suppose you would not think it fair to expect Alice to wait on her as well as the others. Indeed, I do not see that you could possibly place her anywhere else. God, uh, if someone could care for my clothes and dress me. Lady Bertram made no opposition. I hope she will prove a well-disposed girl, continued Mrs. Norris, and be sensible of her uncommon good fortune having such friends. Should her disposition be really bad? Oof. Should her disposition be really bad, said Sir Thomas. We must not, for our own children's sake, continue her in the family. But there's no reason to expect so great an evil. We shall probably see much to wish altered in her. And must prepare ourselves for gross ignorance, some meanness of opinions, 
in very distressing vulgarity of manner. <laughs> Something's never changed. Some meanness of opinions. Oh, I'm so sick of being responsible for my opinions. All right, anyway, to go on. But these are not incurable faults. Nor, I trust, can they be dangerous for her associates. Had my daughters been younger than herself, I should have considered that introduction of such a companion as a matter of very serious moment. But as it is, I hope there can be nothing for fear for them, and everything to hope for her from the association. That is exactly what I think, cried Miss Norton. Take a shot every time she says she cries. <laughs> All right, that is exactly what I think, cried Mrs. Norris. And what I was saying to my husband this morning, it'll be an education for the child, said I, only being with her cousins. If Miss Lee taught her nothing, she would learn to be good and clever from them. I hope she will not tease my poor pug, said Lady Bertram. I have but just got Julia to leave it alone. There will be some difficulty in our way, Mrs. Norris observed Sir Thomas, as to the distinction proper to be made between the girls as they grow up. How to preserve in the minds of my daughters the consciousness of what they are, the daughters of a slave owner, without making them think too lowly of their cousin. I mean, you know, part of that was my improvisation. Um... And how, without distressing her spirits too far, to make her remember that she is not a Miss Bertram, I should wish to see them very good friends, and would on no account authorize in my girls the smallest degree of arrogance towards their relation. But still, they cannot be equals. Their rank, fortune, rights, and expectations will always be different. It is a point of great delicacy, and you must assist us in our endeavors to choose exactly the right line of conduct. Mrs. Norris was quite at his service, and though she perfectly agreed with him as to its being a most difficult thing, encouraged him to hope that between them it would be easily managed. It will be readily believed that Mrs. Norris did not write to her sister in vain. Mrs. Price seemed rather surprised that a girl should be fixed on when she had so many fine boys, but accepted the author most the offer most thankfully, assuring them of her daughter's being a very well-disposed, good-humored girl, and trusting they would never have cause to throw her off. She spoke of her father as somewhat delicate and puny, but was sanguine in hope of her being material better for the change of air. Poor woman! She probably thought change of air might agree with many of her children. End of chapter one. All right, so there we are. Um, like and subscribe. Bye. <laughs>